ಕಸ್ಸಪಕೋ ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಪ್ಮಸಂಪುತ ನಮೋತಸ್ಸಪಕೋ ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಪ್ಮಸಂಪುತ ನಮೋತಸ್ಸಪಕೋ ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಪ್ಮಸಂಪುತ ಪುತಂ ತಪ್ಮಂ ಸಂಖಂ ನಮಸ್ಸಿ So first of all I'd like to offer a warm greeting nice to see you all happy to be here and uh, allow me to rejoice in your practice so people have come from another country to uh, live with uh, probably less comfortable circumstances to walk meditation sit meditation chant listen to dhamma this is very noble and very uh, inspiring and i do rejoice i'm very happy for you i'm happy for you that you have a quality of faith that is uh, manifesting as real effort because that's what uh, it takes to grow in buddha dhamma as far as i can tell it's a uh, for modern people setting the aspiration to go beyond greed hatred and delusion and realize nibbana it's a wonderful aspiration and, uh, but it's a, it is a particular challenge i think for us with our current conditioning we grow up with this sense of uh, you know after 12 years you finish high school you get a high school certificate after four years you can get a three or four years you can get a bachelor degree two more years you can get a masters a couple more years you get a phd work at your job diligently after five years you get a promotion yeah, save up some money put a deposit on a house get a 20 year mortgage whatever it is pay off a car in five years and uh, when we come to this practice this aspiration this goal realistically for most of us we're talking about a few lifetimes so that requires a different quality of resolve a different quality of commitment and tenacity and also a lot of patience and at times humility this and this is a challenge because on one level we need to have the confidence that we can do it which we can and we need to have the aspiration very clearly the aspiration and then then we have to have the patience and the tenacity and the consistency and the discipline with humility so it's it's tricky and uh i think it it may have been easier for people in the past for example if you were a rice farmer in northeast thailand and uh your life was you were already kind of sleeping on a hard floor you didn't have much of a mattress and 
you had to go and plow the fields behind the buffalo and you had to do that all day. You might have to do that for a month. Then you had to uh, plant the rice grass seedlings. You might have to do that for a month. Bent over in the mud for uh, much of the day behind a buffalo. I feel like I'm being plugged into the matrix. <laughs> Black thing. Where were we? We were in the mud behind the buffalo. Okay. So, people of Northeast Thailand in Ajahn Chah's generation, a lot of the people who became the Arahants, were uh, from rural families in Northeast Thailand and they were habituated, accustomed to slogging hard work many days and uh, they developed a lot of patience with painful feelings and they developed a capacity to just keep doing it until it was done and uh, of course when we grow up in different situations we have a, a modern person's attention span, a modern person's attachment to quick gratification, a capacity to distract ourselves and entertain ourselves very easily then it's uh, it's a challenge. But obviously you have strong faith because you're here. And uh, how do we... I think the thing I'd like to talk about as you're approaching the end of your retreat is uh, how do you maintain uh, a high level of faith which manifests as a deep, consistent commitment because that is, that is what's required. So I know from my discussions with Tanatunanan and uh, Lumpur Biak, Tanajandan, Hatunanan's contemporaries, that uh, as laymen, these three bhikkhus had jhana samadhi. Before they even became bhikkhus, they were experiencing some of these high states of samadhi that most of us would like to experience. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Or how? How is that possible? And neither Lumpur Biak, none of them were rice farmers either. So for myself, it's clear that it's a matter of practice in past lives. And so when we read the suttas, and you have the, most of you will be familiar, the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutta, by the end of the sutta, Anya Kondanya is a stream enterer. In the following days, Lord Buddha teaches the Anatalakana Sutta and the five Panchawaki all become Arahants. A little bit later, Lord Buddha is teaching the Kasapa brothers' disciples, the matted hair, fire-worshipping ascetics in Gaya, a group of 200, 300 and 500, a thousand altogether. By the end of the teaching on the fire sermon, there are a thousand more arahants in the world. How is it possible? What the sutta doesn't tell us, and what I suspect is probably the case, is those of us who've studied paths and fruits aspire to attaining to the first level of liberation and all levels of liberation, we will be familiar with the teaching that after stream entry, sotapanna, it wouldn't be possible to take a seventh, more than a seventh life. No more than seven more lives after stream entry. 
So is it possible? I would suggest very likely that the matted hair, fire-worshipping ascetics were already stream-enterers. So whoever in their current life makes it look easy is because of the hard work they did before. And that's, as far as I can tell, the way things work in this conditioned realm. When I was starting Anandagiri Monastery, if you go to Anandagiri Forest Monastery now, it is a monastery in a forest. You go there, yeah, this looks like a forest monastery. When I turned up at Anandagiri Monastery 13 years ago, it was bald hills with no road, no electricity, no water, no forest. How do you make a forest monastery out of bald hills work? When we planted 6,000 trees, I'm talking about 50 centimeter trees less thick than my pinky finger in the first year, and the second year we planted another 8,000, following year planted 10,000 trees. It was a very, uh, the day of tree planting is very joyful. Hundreds of villagers come to help, scores of soldiers came to help dig the holes. That's the wonderful thing about living in Thailand is people are willing to help you. But of course they come for that one day and they all take photos and they all feel happy, they're making a forest. But uh, making a forest is more than a half a day <laughs> planting <laughs> trees. And so then it, I, I suddenly realized that if I wanted the forest to grow, because grass in Thailand grows to be two or three meters tall, I didn't know that because it's a hot and very wet country. And so if you don't cut the grass five times a year, the grass grows so tall it smothers the trees and the trees die. So that happy feeling of I'm making a forest became, how do I find the funds to cut the grass five times a year to keep the forest growing? It became a bit of stre a stress. Thai people don't like to make merit by cutting grass, it seems. From, what, from my experience. And so I had to go and teach overseas because overseas people <laughs> have more interest in, in green projects. I think archetypally for Thai people, the forest is a place of malaria, snakes, centipedes, scorpions, tigers, and evil spirits. So when Thai people think of forests, they don't think, oh good, let's make a forest. They do like the arahants that, who practice in the forest, as their field of merit, but they don't like the forest. Fortunately, people in Australia, Scotland, Singapore, Malaysia have some sympathy for forests. Anyway, so one day the forestry department grass cutters that I'd raised the funds to be able to pay came and cut the grass. And one of the grass cutters was a new grass cutter and he just plowed down this hillside and he chopped down the trees as well as the grass. And I must confess, I actually cried. It was the second year of cutting the grass five times a year and the tree had grown all of 15 centimeters and it had cost us 400,000 baht. And this guy came and chopped down the trees and we had to pay him to chop down the trees. I called up my committee member, I was trying to express my frustration, and there were a couple of tears. But what's my point? My point is now, 
the trees at Anandagiri are 8, 9, 10 and 12 metres tall. So for the first five years, it looked like they were doing nothing. Because they have to send down their roots before they send out leaves. Because once they have leaves, they have to keep those leaves hydrated. So the first thing they do, I didn't know that, I hadn't made a forest before. And so it looks like nothing's happening. And uh, what was interesting was because those trees that were chopped down by that one naughty grass cutter, because they did have good roots and because they had been fertilized and because the grass had been cut around them, they sprouted out again from the trunks that were chopped. They sprouted up again. And now, 12 years into the project, you can't tell which was the half acre where the trees were chopped down. In the beginning part of practice, it can be like this. There's a sense of things aren't growing as fast as we would like them to. There's a sense of having to do a lot of work and not seeing the results that we want. And this is where the uh, sense of perspective and a capacity to have a longer term view is crucial. Because in my own experience, my feelings of frustration that I had to cut down that grass. Well, that grass became a fertilizer and enzymes grew in that fertilizer. And when enzymes grew in that fertilizer, the earthworms came back and there was more moisture in the soil and more earthworms in the soil. And then we don't need to fertilize the soil because the earthworms produce nitrogen. Now, those trees grow a meter a year without being fertilized and they're already 10 meters tall. But the first five years was difficult. Just constantly feeling like nothing's happening, gotta cut the grass again, where's the money coming from? Nobody cares. And now it's beautiful. So with, with our practice, it's really like that. And one of the benefits of retreats, in terms of having a long-term optimistic view, reflecting in ways that are an encouragement to yourself, if you imagine your most peaceful periods of meditation, during this past seven days. I'd like you to understand that in the future, <clears throat> if you keep up with the practice and your spiritual powers get more powerful, your factors of enlightenment, the rapture, the tranquility, the uh, mindfulness with clear comprehension, the samadhi, the equanimity, as these qualities grow, in the future, the most peaceful you felt in this retreat will probably be the worst that you feel. That will become a new foundation. A bit of Kanika Samadhi, a bit of Upajara Samadhi is, is normal. And then you'll start to experience Apana Samadhi, the jhanas, regularly. So that, that was the case with, as I mentioned, Tanajana Nan, when he was a layman, he already had quite remarkable Samadhi. And it is good, it's sometimes when you have to make a hard, long, grueling, difficult effort, then you have to imagine how wonderful the outcome is going to be, because then it makes it worth it. Kruber Michael said something interesting to me the other day. He's one of Tanajan's translators, American monk. He said that Tanajan Anand said to him, that sometimes he has to force himself to try to remember what it was like to suffer. 
before he gives a Dhamma talk. Now that's a very revealing and interesting statement, isn't it? If I want to remember the last time I had some significant suffering, I just have to think about last week. It's not difficult for me to talk to you about suffering. Tanajana has to remember when he last felt like a self that was suffering. Isn't that wonderful? So we, we have to consider that that's where this practice goes. That really is where it goes, a state of no suffering. It doesn't mean that there isn't physical pain in the body, but the attachment and identification with the body will be gone. And of course, it may be Tanajan's last body, probably is. So we're very fortunate that we know such beings exist, and we're very fortunate that we occasionally hear these interesting statements, and oh, that's interesting. And back, back to my analogy, the analogy of, you know, to accomplish anything in this life that's going to be kind of stabilized, sustainable, ongoing benefit, it requires consistent and sustained discipline. So this is where we have to have our commitment to our daily practice. And that means sometimes when the mind is dull, you just do it anyway. Sometimes when you feel too tired, you do it anyway. Because when you do that, suppose it's been a busy period, you get home, you haven't meditated that day, but you remember, I'm aspiring for liberation, I'm aspiring for something better than these conditions. So you do it. At the very least, you're establishing your commitment to the discipline. And so when the next day comes and you weren't so busy and you get to your pillow a bit sooner, you're sitting and the mind can become peaceful. Some days you might have to sit with drooping shoulders and a drooping head and a bit of dribble. And it's okay. You don't, you don't have to look impressive. It's not about looking impressive. It's about building impressive qualities, tenacity, patience, consistency. And, uh, you know, when I, when I first went to Anandagiri to establish the monastery, I was 38. People told me that I looked like I was in my early 30s. By the time I'd been there for three years, I definitely looked 40. I've been there for 12 years, now I'm 51. I personally think I look about 55. Why? Lots of hard work on lots of levels consistently without having a break. I'm not complaining. The goal of my life is not to try to look young. When, when you start off as an abbot, you have some of the skills that are required, but you don't have all of them. So you have, to, you have to work with the skills that you have while you build new skills. And then you have to train other people while you train yourself. And so learning how to be a, a building project manager, learning how to be a reforestation project manager, learning how to be a social worker, learning how to be a Dharma teacher, learning how to be a tour guide in India, how to teach retreats, it's a lot to learn. And so it is stressful. But what do I get from that? I get the merit of having established a monastery, the merit of having, with my students and supporters, established a forest. I get the merit of having taught thousands of people some basic meditation skills. And the way that merit manifests is that when I meditate, I've got a few things to feel wholesome sense of joy about and not much to feel remorse about, so my mind can become quite peaceful without much difficulty. 
So, you know, success in life is about hard work and consistency and discipline and focus. And, and so that means remembering the goal when it looks uninspiring, when it looks difficult, when it looks far away. We have to, we have to doubt that. I mean, doubt is one of the five hindrances. So we doubt the practice, we doubt the teacher, we doubt our ability. And we actually have to doubt our doubt. But don't doubt the Buddha, don't doubt your teachers, don't doubt your ability, doubt your doubts. When that voice comes and says, what's the point, there's no point, I'm too tired. Don't doubt that. That's the, that's the time to have unshakable faith in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. There's no point sitting today, I'm just going to be restless anyway. Doubt that. That's not wisdom. When there's a lot of restlessness, you sit and you know restlessness is restlessness. When you're tired, you sit and you know sloth and torpor is sloth and torpor. When you have doubts, you remind yourself what you have faith in and why you have faith in it. So, there's many different analogies. When you, if you think of the, these beautiful vases in, chi, in Chinese, uh, one of the emperors wanted this, the ceramic artists to produce something that looked like jade. The Celadon ceramics. And so they had to experiment with all these different kinds of uh, glazes. So eventually they found a certain combination of clay, wood ash, and dirt from the field after the rice was harvested when fired to 1,250 degrees produced a beautiful serene jade green color. But what's important to understand or at least acknowledge is that glaze when you put it on your bisked pre-fired vase is a horrible brown gray color. It looks, there's nothing special or beautiful about it at all. And what are you doing? You have to go and burn something. You have to go into a dry, dusty field, mix these gray ingredients together. But what's the thing that makes it beautiful? The sustained high temperature. How do you get a kiln to produce a, a heat of 1,250 degrees? Well, you have to put more wood on and more wood on and more wood on and certain types of wood that burn at high temperatures and you have to get the amount of oxygen you let in just right and it builds and it builds and it builds and then you get a beautiful result. So our practice is like that. We can get really extraordinary results. We all can. That's the hardware, it's not the software. When you're born, when you've got this five khandhas, you've got a body, you've got a mind. You have what the Tibetans call Buddha nature, Buddha potential. It's there. And uh, then it's a matter of following the Eightfold Path, cultivating the Eightfold Path, and then you begin to glimpse, you know, that the problem is the power of greed, hatred, and delusion that obscures the ultimate nature of the mind. But when we cultivate the Eightfold Path, you will begin to glimpse it, you'll begin to experience it. And then we take heart from that and we know others who have done it and then we keep going. Recently, I, about a year ago, I decided I was going to start a water painting of Lotus's practice. So by now you're probably working out that Ajahnacho has a somewhat art artistic temperament. And uh, 
I just decided as a practical, we didn't have a building project, thank goodness. After building the monastery, it was kind of like, okay, a year with no building project. I had a bit of a spare time. I would like to acknowledge that I didn't do it instead of my practice, I did it as well as my practice. So I had my morning sit before arms round, my, my sitting after arms round, my sitting in the afternoon, my evening sitting and my practice before sleeping. But I did have a few hours after the meal. And so I just decided, having had no training, I just decided that I was going to spend two, three, four hours a day painting lotuses. What was really interesting about deciding to do something from the beginning is that I wasn't expecting myself to be good at it. Which is, re which is really nice. It's really nice when you start something new and you know you're not an expert and you're not expecting much of yourself but you, keep, you just put in the discipline anyway. I noticed that when I got to 300 hours of painting lotuses that I started to be more critical and expect more of myself. And uh, this is a, okay, this is a bit painful. At the same time, it also made me work harder. So, you know, whenever, whenever we're trying to do something in a consistent and disciplined way, and we want the results, we want good results, we have to be, we have to be careful of the fault-finding mind. We have to have the aspiration. We have to have the consistency of the discipline. But we also have to keep remembering beginner's mind. It's going to take time. And uh, as it happened, I did actually paint 100 lotus paintings in a year and the skill got better. Why did I take lotus as my theme? The lotus is a symbol in Buddhism, Lord Buddha mentions it in the suttas, of rising above the mud of greed, hatred and delusion. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but droplets of water don't actually stick to lotus petals or lotus leaves, they roll off. There's something on the leaves and the petals that it doesn't stick. And so Lord Buddha also has this analogy of the world not sticking to the mind of the liberated being. And there's another important aspect to the symbol of the lotus as well is the lotus grows in mud and transcends mud. And that reminds me of something that Lumpur Liam, my preceptor, said. He says, purity grows from impurity. It's a very interesting statement. What does that mean? It means that when we come to practice, we all have greed, hatred and delusion. We all have a lot of the five hindrances. That's where we start. And Lumpur Chah says, the place of suffering is the place where we practice. Another very interesting teaching. I love these very pithy and short teachings. They're full of meaning. What does that mean? Well, it's like the place where you're suffering is where the attachment is. In your heart area, normally. The craving, the clinging, the grasping. And that's the place when you have mindfulness, clear comprehension, a little bit of samadhi, right view that you're able to relinquish the unwholesome mind state. You're able to go beyond the hindrance in that very same spot. So the, the lotus grows from the mud. The purity grows from the impurity. The place of suffering is the place of practice. So if you can see suffering like that as a very, very ripe situation from which good things can grow, then I think that's a healthy perspective. Because let's face it, we all have a lot of suffering. So it's good if we can get a, a wholesome perspective on it.
and remind ourselves, uh, Lompoliem says, the place of the mud is where the purity is. Ajahn Chah says the suffering is where the, is where the practice is. You know, where the suffering arises is where the suffering ceases. And, uh, one of my students in Malaysia sponsored some prints of my lotus paintings and I bought some to give to you as gifts. Uh, nice quality prints and uh, if you uh, want to, you can stick one on your wall somewhere and remind yourself. That's one of the reasons I was doing it as well. Is let's face it, there's a lot of painful news, difficult news these days, and I, the mind can get become dejected, can become a bit depressed, can feel a bit hopeless, feel a bit worried about the future, and that's not actually very helpful. When you look at the list of five hindrances: restlessness, anxiety, worry. It's the fourth hindrance. Doesn't incline the mind to peacefulness. So we have to be. We have to be careful with how much we allow ourselves to look at news. News is like endlessly fascinating in a terrible way. It's a bit like watching a train crash. Can't quite bring your eyes, you can't quite look away. But we have to, because the world is constantly going to be manifesting more train crashes. And uh, okay, it is terrible that Hamas burnt babies in Israel. It's terrible. Okay, it's terrible that the Israeli forces blow up a refugee camp. But it's very important to understand when cultivating compassion as one of the Brahma Viharas, the near enemy, there's far enemies and near enemies, the near enemy is personal distress. So if you're feeling distressed, if you're feeling dejected, if you're feeling sad, it's not compassion. A lot of people can get ad addicted to this feeling of, oh, it's so terrible, oh, so what are we going to do? The desire to want to do something is wholesome. The, the act of caring is wholesome. Personal distress is not, is a, something that obstructs the pure arising of compassion. So we have to know our strength and we have to know our weakness. We have to know how much news can I watch before I become distressed? What's the right amount? The right amount, in my opinion, is the amount that urges you to do more to better yourself and get yourself out of this situation, not, not to depress yourself or distress yourself. So be very careful as you go back to your lay lives with how you consume media, because it's very well produced and very well pro packaged and it's quite addictive. It's like you want to see the next installment. Who's going to get blown up next? Who's going to be bombed next? And, uh, but it's not helpful for your mindfulness and clear comprehension. Thank you. So when thinking of the benefits of daily practice, we have to think in terms of what the long-term benefits are, but also the short-term benefits and the medium-term benefits we think about the benefits so that we're inspired to do it, so that we can maintain and sustain the commitment. Sometimes the benefits of consistent practice, it's not so obvious, it's a subtle thing. One of the main benefits of practice is a sense of clarity, a sense of presence of mind, a little bit of spaciousness around your mind states. And it's a difficult thing to quantify in a materialist age. It's a difficult thing to put a value on. 
but it's enormously valuable. It's probably the most valuable thing. Why? Whether you have presence of mind and whether or not you have clarity is going to affect how things affect you, the decisions you make afterwards, the way you react. How valuable is that? To not have a compulsive reaction to that relative that always triggers you, to not start yelling at the kids, to not bring up the same grudges with the husband, to not go into all of those autopilots for all the disappointments and, and start ranting in your mind or with your mouth. To be able to have a sense of presence of mind that knows, okay, there comes that mind state. Okay, don't act on that. Okay, don't do something wholesome which changes the mind state. You're about to say it, no, don't say it. How valuable is that? It's enormously valuable. And so the more we practice, and particularly when we practice consistently, that I think is the quality that's, that comes about. A sense of clarity, a sense of presence of mind, a sense of, of recognition. This is the mindfulness with clear comprehension. This is the sati sampajanya. That part of the mind that knows whether a mind state is wholesome, neutral or unwholesome. That comes with right mindfulness and listening to teachings developing right view. So when we are consistent with our practice, we're going to have more of that. If we're not consistent with our practice, we have less of that. What does that mean? It means we're going to get deluded by our mind states. Very important thing to understand about delusion. When you're deluded, you're not going to be walking around thinking, oh, I'm deluded. You're going to be walking around thinking, you're right. This is my right opinion. I'm right to be angry. I'm right to hold a grudge. I'm right to want to punish. I'm right to want to justify the sensual things I want to do because I need to relax. Delusion. Mindfulness and clear comprehension. Oh, aversion. Mindfulness and clear comprehension. Craving, sensuality. Mindfulness and sexual desire. You need to keep an eye on these things. And the thing that makes it possible is that you got up and you meditated in the morning and then you set your intention I'm going to maintain my clarity sometimes when we, when we do practice the results they're not so obvious because when we're talking about nama not rupa we're talking about subtle mental phenomenon sometimes I've, I've been practicing in Bogaya many people who are familiar with with my life my teachings will know that I've done med meditation marathons in Bogaya long meditation retreats and sometimes, like doing 10 hours a day for six weeks under the Bodhi tree. So that would be two, four sessions of two and a half hours. And I've done that maybe 10 times. What's interesting is when you're meditating there, there's still impingement of unpleasant phenomenon. There's still un occasional unwholesome thoughts. There's still pain in the body. If you're not, if you're not paying attention to what else is there, if you're, if you're assuming that there's not going to be any suffering at all, you're not going to notice what else is there. Because what I've noticed is when I'm walking back to the guest house, where I stay with other monks and some of my close lay students, it's about a kilometer. After 10 hours of meditating in the Bodhi tree, if I've been doing it for a few days, the whole time I walk from the Bodhi tree to my bedroom, I feel like I'm floating rude sellers, dirty beggars, 
loud noises, nothing sticks. The body is light, the mind is light, the mind is happy, the resilience. And then lying in bed, you can't fall asleep. Why? Because the mind is too bright and too content. It doesn't want to sleep. It wants to abide with bright contentment. But the thing is, when I was under the Bodhi tree in the last hour, it was, oh, it hurts. Oh, no, no, I don't know if this is working. If you believe the doubts, right? But if you're consistent with the effort, you know, okay, well, oh, I feel really good now. What happens when we're practicing is it's like we're looking at our minds with a magnifying glass. There's no, there's no end to the faults that you can find with what, with what could be better. What we have to train ourselves to recognize is what's the quality of clarity? What's the quality of presence that is there? Is that improving? Is it more consistent? Are you less reactive? I remember when I was a novice, I wanted to disrobe. I tell that story sometimes that I was uh, sweeping around my teacher's kuti and I hadn't shaved my eyebrows. And my, my Ajahn noticed, Samanera Achlo, why haven't you shaved your eyebrows? And I said, well, I've decided I'm going to disrobe at the end of the rainy season in a month. And because I would like to find a lover, I think eyebrows, eyebrows will be helpful. And uh, he asked, why are you thinking of disrobing? You've been putting forth a good effort. And I said, well, I'm just sitting there thinking about sex. That's how I, the way I get through the morning meditation is think about sex. And I'm like, I've done Siri Panyo at the time, and I don't recommend that to anybody. I've done Siri Panyo at the time, who was sitting to the right of me, had learnt the Pati Moka, a 45-minute chant. I think he learnt it in six weeks. And, uh, and I'm like, if that's what a monk is, and I'm doing this, well, it's been great to do it for a year, but I'm not doing this anymore. And Ajahn Pasnam, he gave a very important teaching to me. It was very helpful. He says, well, were you having these thoughts this time last year? Yes. Did you think they were so bad last year? No. And he said, well, this is actually growth. That you know a mind state is unwholesome and uninspiring is development. And you have to be, you, you just have to keep, he, think, he said, I think you're putting forth a good enough effort. And you just have to keep going. And he said, and don't compare yourself to other monks. And he says, because eventually the, the standards of monks, the skillful means, the conventions of being a good monk, he says, that's also a convention that ultimately has to be let go of. If a monk identifies too much with that, he won't be developing his insight either. He might be get vain or arrogant or proud from his learning and his discipline. The real practice is knowing what is wholesome, knowing what is neutral, knowing what is unwholesome and making the efforts to abandon the unwholesome and keep increasing the wholesome for wherever you are. And then he says, Nenatlo, go and shave your eyebrows. And here I am, 26 years later. So, <laughs> yeah. So I've been talking for about 40 minutes, which is my preferred length of Dhamma talks. And, uh, so, I do rejoice once again in your practice. I do wish you every success in your practice. Mostly, I wish you a sense of resolve that is going to manifest as commitment and consistency and have faith. You keep cutting the grass. That's like seeing a hindrance as a hindrance, right? You keep cutting that grass. It's going to become fertilizer. Those trees are gonna grow. The five spiritual powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, they will grow and uh, you will have a pleasant abiding here and now in your own mind. 
but you do have to keep pulling out the weeds and you do have to keep fertilizing the trees. So uh, I wish you every success in your practice. Questions. I'm willing, happy to take some questions. We have 15 more minutes. Thank you, Ajahn, for the encouraging talk. For the past one week, we were uh, disciplined to follow the training in this uh, ideal environment. Tomorrow, we are going back, and uh, usually we tend to go back to our own old habits, old ways of uh, worldly life. Uh, can Ajahn give us more tips or secrets to how to maintain our training at home? Yeah. yeah. So, if Tanajana Nun is the kind of monk that you feel is really well practiced and you deeply respect, then if you know you have a lazy tendency, I would recommend that you go and make a personal promise to him I'm going to meditate twice a day from now until I die. <laughs> really? Because you wake up and you feel like you don't want to meditate, you need to have a big picture of him in your bedroom. You wake up and you don't feel like meditating, you look at his face and say, oh, I made a promise to Lumpur. We need to do these kind of things. You need carrot and stick. And uh, you can do it at the Bodhi tree, which is from a sapling from the Bodhi tree in India. You can go and make a vow, like, I vow to do such and such. When you, when you make your vows, and one of the reasons I lead groups of students to Bodhgaya is for that reason. If you set an aspiration in a place that you really feel is holy, then you really want to keep it. And the, those normal excuses, oh, I feel tired. Ah, you made a vow at the Bodhi tree. You need a kind of an antidote force, like, hey, I made a commitment. Hey, I made a promise. So things like that. You know, and I, in general, I always recommend meditating in the morning, not last thing at night. I recommend not looking at your phone until you've done the meditation. So you know, many people sleep with the phone right by the side, wake up and look at it as soon as they wake up. And uh, not recommended. So you know, people are distracted and entertained till late at night and they fall asleep, they, they don't quite get enough sleep, they wake up feeling tired. So we need to look at our habits. Make some kind of promise to yourself that you're not sleeping past a certain hour. I, I will go to bed at 10. I think for Malaysians, Singaporeans, it's so hot during the day, people like to stay up late at night when it's nice and cool. 
and they eat quite late and many people are going to bed at 12 and 1 and 2. So it's not, it's not good for one's meditation practice. So you make some kind of commitment, I'm going to go to bed at the latest 11 and I'm going to get up at 6 and meditate. Then when you meditate, you put your plane in flight mode. You're going on an inner journey. Just don't look at it, put it on flight mode. Your alarm will still work, you'll still be able to see what time it is, you'll see how many minutes you sat. But you're not going to get the bing bing, bing bing, bing bing thing. Don't start your day with that. Because uh, when you pick this thing up, the world comes flushing it, flooding in. And it's endlessly distracting and endlessly frustrating and endlessly fascinating. And uh, you want to establish some clarity before you engage with it. Remember what your goals are. You know, if you can have a nice shrine room, that's enormously helpful. A Buddha statue that you love and appreciate that really says something to you about the Buddha's qualities. Pictures of your favorite teachers. Do some chanting. So, you know, I recommend at least two sessions a day. So sometimes in the morning, if you don't have that much time, at least, you know, get up, wash your face, brush your teeth, look at your shrine, light a candle or something, or turn on your light and sit. In the evening, if you've got some restlessness or you're a bit sleepy, that's the time to do the chanting because it pacifies the restless thoughts or it wakes up the mind. So it's like, do your chanting at night and then have a sit. You might find after the chanting, the thoughts are pacified, the, the sleepiness is less. So I think at least two sessions a day, preferably three, morning, afternoon and evening. So if you, uh, are you retired yet? Yes, yes I'm No I'm excuses, really three times a day, no excuses. So semi-retired two times a day. Because you know, mindfulness gets stronger with consistency and repetition, it, it really, and slowly. Consistent, slowly, repeatedly, I'm not, I'm not going to make any claims to enlightenment, but I can tell you this. If I do my chanting and meditation before I sleep, when I wake up in the morning, I'm aware of my first in-breath. When I get up to go to the bathroom, I can feel the feelings at the bottom of my feet. That's a result of 27 years of doing it. Going on arms round, feeling my footsteps, being aware of the breath, placing the awareness of the in-breath and out-breath. So when I wake up, the mind goes to the in-breath. When I go to the bathroom, even the sleepiness in the mind, the, I can feel the bottom of my feet. But it only, that kind of result only comes from consistency. And so, aim for two or three times a day. Be careful with your media consumption. I really do think, you know, flight mode. Because, uh, you know, it's only 45 minutes or an hour. You can answer your messages afterwards, you can return the call. I remember when I was a, a young monk and I was walking around with my young abbot, walking around with my phone and having to answer the phone. I really didn't like how that looked for a monk to be walking around with the phone, talking with the phone, walking. I didn't like it, but I had to do it for the first couple of years because it's really a lot of work to liaise and coordinate. At a certain point, I spoke with my committee member because if I put my phone on silent and I called people back, that meant that I was going to have to pay for every call. So I asked my committee member, I said, do you mind if, can I have a bigger budget for my phone because I'm going to be the only one making calls now. When I see that someone calls and I call them back when it's a convenient time for me. So I left the phone in my kuti. I go back, I saw somebody call, I call them back. My committee member, she was a, she was a lovely, generous lady, yes, she increased my phone credit to help me maintain the sense of being a good monk and mindfulness. 
So it's like we, we need to learn how to use these things, not be used by them. And uh, I, I swear some people, sometimes people come to the monastery, their phone's going, they don't know how to turn it off. They're fumbling and fumbling, it's ringing, ringing, ringing. So that means since they got it and charged it, they never turned the thing off once. That's really scary to me. That's it. Mine's on silent all the time. You know, when, when you use those apps, you can, you can leave. So Tanajana Nun is not on silent. If Ajana Nun calls, I'll know. But everyone else's notifications is turned off. And uh, I see when they called, and I call them back when it's convenient for me. So things like that, managing our time and setting healthy boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Satu. Thank you very much, Jan, for your wonderful talk. Uh, my question is, uh, uh, from the age of uh, 25, I'm 51 today. Happy birthday. I've been aspiring to be a Sotapanna. <laughs> but, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like uh, aspiring to be an Arya, is it also not an attachment? Because sometimes I feel like, um, I, I, I do have a good discipline, like to practice in the morning, four to six, sitting, almost regularly. But then, after some time, like out of the blue, you have this very extreme negative thoughts, and you feel like, I think your practice is not working, you're not going to be Sotapanna. Or sometimes I feel like, maybe be, uh, wanting to be a Sotapanna itself is an attachment or right. something. It is an attachment, but that we, we separate in the, in terms of the language, we separate chanda, aspiration, from tanha, the usual quality of craving. So an aspiration to realize your ultimate potential, yes, it's an attachment, but it's wholesome. And that experience that you have of when you have a really negative result, it's because you're holding up that mirror that helps you, that helps you see the negative as negative because you're holding it in, in, in comparison to the ultimate purity. When you, when, pra when you practice quite hard but then you still have a really negative mind state come up, we need to understand this is probably the result of past karmas, past life stuff. So the way, Lord Buddha says karma is a difficult thing to understand, it's so complex. So I have certainly, having done you know, somewhere between 30 and 40,000 hours of meditation, I've been able to observe many things. Sometimes my day went fine. Nothing happened to cause me to be upset. I came and I sat and a painful emotion manifested in my chitta. So what did, where is that? What is that from? And my, my kind of sense was, and I checked with my arjans, is yes, negative karmas that you created in the past can ripen as a mindset in your mind with no approximate cause in the present moment, other than you made other beings feel like that a long time ago. So that's just part of practice. And with regards to the uncertainty of when people are gonna get the, the big result, you know, I think you're kind of aware of this, people who have read Lompo Cha's biography, that there was times where he had so much lust, he had to walk in the forest lifting his lower robe up so it wouldn't rub against his personal parts. This is in his last lifetime. And the, that's not, everybody's interested all of a sudden. 
<laughs> I mean, I love that about Ajahn Chah, that if somebody wanted to take it out of his biography, he says, no, you can't take that out. That's an important part of it. He, he was in the forest alone, obviously he's not going to do that where anyone can see, but for him to continue with his practice, he's walking while he had an erection, so that the sabong wouldn't rub against it, and so he could continue with his meditation. So, if you're going to judge Ajahn Chah had lustful, passionate mind states not long before completely finishing his work. My own experience of when I was doing these long meditation sessions in Bogaya, there were a couple of occasions where I, I had what I would consider to be you know, profound experiences, very peaceful. But the mind state an hour before was unwholesome. And I really noticed that. I really noticed that it. it was a sense of there was a, you know, a bit of frustration that a lustful thought came up or a lustful fantasy takes away the wholesome energy and it's like, oh God, I have to start again, you know, because I lost my mindfulness for a few moments. But then there was a particular quality of resolve. No, I'm going to put up a fight. I'm not giving up that easy. I'm going to try harder. And then half an hour later, something quite profound can happen. So, yeah, it, it's not sure. And uh, we, just, we just keep going. In terms of when, when things converge and come together, people have deep insights or path and fruit experiences. It's not slowly and steadily getting better and better and, and then boom. Maybe for some people, but for, for, it depends on karma. And uh, it's, I think it's quite normal to still be having negative, uninspiring mind states. So samadhi suppresses Achilles, but they bounce back up again. And it's only when a person is established in those Aryan paths that they've actually begun to really uproot them. So it's inevitable that they keep sprouting back. And then it's a, we just keep applying the antidote, keep applying the effort and energy. So. Uh, I think you have answered part of the questions that uh, I wanted to ask about your 26 years previously of shaving the eyebrow. Yeah, and the, uh, the, the sexual thought that arises suddenly when you're doing meditation or like uh, just now you have explained the... Come closer the, to the mic, please. The, uh, the experience of Ajahn Chah the thought that arises maybe from the previous karma, yeah. right? So I think, uh, of course, is at this time, do you still have this uh, thought and uh, uh, of sh keeping your eyebrow, of what? Uh, keeping your eyebrow again that you want to disrobe after 26 oh. years? No, I don't want to disrobe, but sometimes I want to have sex. <laughs> so I'm not an arahant, evidently. But I give you my promise, as long as I'm wearing the robe, I won't have sex. So it's like, it, it comes up like that. <laughs> it's like, oh, I like being a monk, I like my life, I like my monastery, but occasionally there's sexual desire. But it's like, the point is, you know you're not going to act on it, that's different. So having a deep commitment that when the desire comes up, you see it as desire and you're not going to act on it, is different to those desire coming in and flooding the mind and taking you and you are the slave to it. So yes, I still do. Pray for me. Pray that I go beyond this. 
the next question is uh, when you mentioned that when you when sometimes when I was doing meditation at night, so when you start the meditation, you start to feel sleepy, right? And then you say, okay, that's for the day, and then you go back to the bed, and then like you have mentioned, then you feel so bright, right? And then your mind is not. You're trying to catch a sleep, but then you can't sleep. Right. So Lord Buddha recommends spreading metta when you're. It will help you fall asleep, but it will also keep the mind wholesome and it will also produce merit. So if you're lying in bed, your mind is bright and you can't quite sleep. Breathing in, may I be well. Breathing out, may all beings be well. Breathing in, may I be happy. Breathing out, may all beings be happy. And Lord Buddha does say in the benefits of loving kindness sutta, one of the eleven benefits is that you fall asleep easily. So. So, yeah. so you go back to the meditation state again? No, you lie there. You're lying down, breathing in, may I be well, breathing out, may all beings be well, breathing in, may I be happy, breathing out, may all beings be happy, on your bed. And then the, the falling asleep come back again? That's okay, you can sleep. It's time to sleep, sleep. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the last so, question is... But I would, I would recommend setting, suppose if you have an evening session of 45 minutes, you stick to it even if you're sleepy. You just do it. Because sometimes you will be sleepy, and sometimes you'll get, you'll, sometimes you'll pass through the sleepiness. The next question is uh, for a family man that actually, if he want to renounce, but then he feel that uh, you're giving the burden to the wife and the kids. Right. Yeah, that is the main hindrance. That. Yeah, you have to ask them. Some wives, the husband says, darling. I don't want to leave the burden with you, but I want to be a monk. Some wives are like, go and be a monk, please. <laughs> and some wives will be, no, 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 I need your help. You know, have a discussion. And if they have right view and they really believe in merit, then supporting you is going to help them have their opportunity in a future life. Depends how much right view they have, depends how much they can manage without you, but have an honest discussion. So I'm feeling, of doing, feeling like doing this. How much do you support me? And, uh, Thank you. Okay. Is that it? Thank you so much, Tanajan. Let's all say three sadhus once again. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.